In this episode, I'm joined by Buddhist meditation teacher Lee Brasington to discuss his new book, Dependent Origination and Emptiness. Sotapai. Lee lifts the lid on his writing process, including how he overcame severe writer's block to complete the book that his students have been asking for for years, and shares his reasoning for making this book available for free. Lee reveals why he considers dependent origination to be the heart of the Buddhist teaching, and traces the different interpretations of this doctrine throughout the Buddhist literature. Lee also draws on the works of Nagarjuna to discuss emptiness, and levels a critique at the teaching of reincarnation, which he calls an immortality project. Lee explains why he prefers to translate dukkha as the hippie slang word bummer, how he came up with the acronym SODAPI, streams of dependently arising phenomena interacting, and offers medium and long-term strategy advice for how to practice this powerful method to achieve the liberation promised in Buddhism. So without further ado, Lee Brasington. Lee Brasington, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, it's very nice to be back here. And first of all, let me congratulate you on your recent publication of your latest book, Dependent Origination and Emptiness, with the subtitle Sotapai. Right. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of amazing. I mean, I don't even like to write. You know, answering emails is a chore. And to now have a second book out. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's really quite amazing for me. Your first book, of course, uh, Right Concentration, Mastering the Jhanas, has become a classic, I think, of uh, meditation books, and a classic on, in particular, the art of jhana uh, and states of uh, high concentration. And this, this latest book, really uh, rather interesting. I think you've written a very interesting book here uh, in a very relatable style. Uh, when I, I was going through it, and I thought, gosh, this is very much Lee's voice. Um, but beneath that readability, I think there, there's a lot of very careful thinking, and you survey um, various perspectives on dependent origination and other topics, and we'll dive into those as, as we go, as well as you know giving your view and commentary throughout. But first of all, this book, I didn't pay anything for this book. What's going on? <laughs> you've, released, what, you've released this book for, for free, amazingly, uh, on your site. Uh, what's the story behind that? Well, when I, you know, sat down to write the book, which was like five years ago, almost six years ago, it was like, yeah, I'll just write another book and I'll get a publisher and, you know, we'll sell the book. Um, when I finished the book, I actually did find a publisher, but it was going to be a year and a half before it ever saw the light of day. And it was like, oh, let, let's do a preprint. Hey, I mean, you know, I've had a dozen people read it and edit it and give me comments and this sentence doesn't make any sense and you misspell that word and you need a diacritical here. It's like, yeah, let's just do a preprint and do it right now. No, they couldn't do that. Oh, okay. Uh, and actually they, they were good. They did manage to get it down to 13 months from 18 months for the digital version to go out. And that's all I wanted as the preprint was just a digital version. So well, I hadn't signed a contract, but they were like, you know, you need to get these permissions. And I had <clears throat> quotes from other authors and I started in on that. And the first one 
<laughs> I filled out the form and it came back and they wanted more money for the permissions than the publisher was offering us in advance. It was like, I'd be better off financially giving the book away. That was what crossed my mind. And it was like, wait a second, I still have to deal with, you know, getting the uh, permissions, but, you know, some of the stuff I actually can find enough other translations of the non-Sutta material that you know, I can use, do fair use. And the Sutta material, I wouldn't need to get permissions for that if I gave the book away because everything I'm using is on the Sutta Central or Access to Insight websites. So I could give it away for free, which the more I thought about it, it was like, wait, people did these transcripts for free. People read it and edited it for free. Uh, I'm using free software. I mean, I wrote the word processor that I wrote it in. You know, I didn't have to buy a word processor or anything. Uh, the Buddha put all this information out there for free. I'm doing my research at Sutra Central and Access to Insight. That's all free. It, it doesn't really seem right to charge money for this. It seems right to give it away for free. I mean, if this is the real Dharma, it should be freely available. And I don't need the money because, yeah, I was a computer programmer and computers were good to me. So, yeah, I can, I can afford to do this and it would be the right thing to do. And so I did. Wonderful. And it's available at leeb.com is your site, isn't it? L-E-I-G-H-B.com. And of course, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, it's there in multiple formats, uh, ebook formats and PDFs and various kinds. So it's fabulous. So what you're saying there has a, some implications in terms of the way in which uh, the Buddhist Dharma is, is propagated, if you like, in North America and uh, all, all over the world, actually, or at least in, in, in the Western world, as, as we call it, uh, which is, of course, through books that are sold um, through publishing houses that uh, run, you know, on money and so on. And teachers, presumably, who charge fees for their retreats and uh, fees for perhaps one on one coaching, etc., meditation coaching and so on. And as you know, there's some division there or debate. Uh, should it be free as the as the Buddha did it, or is it okay to charge? And if so, if so, how much? And so on and so forth. Should it just be donation basis, which is a kind of deferred, kind of a deferred <laughs> fee in a way? But anyway, do you have a, a thought on that? Yeah. So it would be great if all of the Dharma was free for everyone, everywhere. But also, that's not practical. I'm lucky because as a computer programmer, I made a nice enough money that when I retired, yeah, I can go off on retreats, uh, I can teach and, you know, people give me Donna at the end of the retreat. Uh, I don't need the dollar a copy I'll get for selling a book, because uh, that's what you get if you go with a publisher. And so I'm in a position where I can practically, you know, in a practical sense, give the book away for free. Most Dharma teachers are not in that situation. And because of the way the West is constructed, you need an income or a nest egg or something. 
And so, yeah, it would be great if it could all be given away for free, but it's not really practically possible for most Dharma teachers. The fact that I am in a position where I can do this, yeah, that's great. Part of how I am able to do this is that I'm well enough known from teaching retreats where people give me dana at the end and publishing a book on the jhanas that went through the normal channels and yeah, it's doing quite well. Uh, so I have enough credibility and I have enough contacts that I can give it away for free. I mean, the book's been out for, it'll be two weeks tonight and there are 2000 visits already to the download page. Wow. So, you know, obviously I have enough contacts to, to get the word out there, like recording a podcast for Guru Viking, which yeah, I'm really happy to do. So if it's possible, then it should be made available for free, but it's not possible in all circumstances. Um, it's just the way Western culture is built. But I'm very, very happy that I'm in a position where I can give this away for free and feel really, really good about it. Hmm. Yeah, and even in the Dana models, of course, um, people still need some sort of income. They still need some means uh, in whatever culture it is of feeding and clothing themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And whether, whether that's charging a fixed fee or receiving Dana, um, the spice must flow. Uh, to quote Frank Herbert, right. <laughs> but one of the finest science fiction books ever written. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so let's get to the book then. What is uh, at a broad level? We'll go into some depth in this interview, but at a broad level, bird's eye view. What is dependent origination? Um, how did you become so passionate about it? And what inspired you to write a book on this topic? <laughs> okay, so what is dependent origination? Uh, it's a translation of the word Paticca Samapada. And it basically is saying that things arise dependent on other things. It's, usually, it's really, I think, probably best introduced by the phrase Itapachayata Paticca Samapada, which of course is a real mouthful. This, that conditionality dependent origination. The first part, this, that conditionality is a loose translation, but basically what the Buddha was saying is this arises dependent on that. If that does not occur, this does not occur. <clears throat> dependent origination is not about causes. Dependent origination is about necessary conditions. So, <clears throat> It's looking at reality in terms of necessary conditions. Now, necessary conditions would be like, well, for the light to be on, you need to have the light switch turned on. The light switch being turned on is a necessary condition for the light to shine, but it's not a sufficient condition. You still need the power plant pumping out electrons. You need the wires to be in, intact. And none of those are the cause of the light shining. Those are just necessary conditions. Uh, excited electrons in the filament or the tube or whatever, pumping out photons is why the light shines. Buddha was a genius in that he didn't get locked into why is all this stuff happening? But, okay, we've identified a problem called dukkha. 
And we need to find a necessary condition or multiple that we can manipulate and turn off those necessary conditions so they do gets turned off. So dependent origination is an examination of how the world is put together with necessary conditions specifically to find one or more that you can turn off so that dukkha no longer arises. And this is what the Four Noble Truths are about. Uh, first, it's a problem, dukkha. And next is dukkha has a necessary condition called craving. And the third, turn off the craving, which <laughs> is easier said than done. And the Fourth Noble Truth is how to learn to go about turning off the craving. So really what the Buddha was teaching in its broadest sense was dependent origination because he said, I teach only dukkha and the end of dukkha. So it's the doctrine of how to get out of dukkha, the techniques, the, a description of the necessary conditions upon which dukkha arises and an exploration of all of that. And it, it shows up in not only the, how dukkha arises, but how we process our sensory input and, and in many other ways. So it's a, it's a broad description of what's going on, but it's not a metaphysical description of what's going on. It doesn't explain why the light shines. It just says, you want to turn it off, turn off the light switch. So how did I get interested in it? Um, I had some very good teachers. Ayakema was my first teacher and she talked about it. Uh, the second retreat I did was with Ajahn Buddhadasa and Santikaro was one of the teachers on that retreat and translated for Ajahn Buddhadasa when he gave his Dharma talk. And at that retreat, they talked about dependent origination. Uh, I sat with Ruth Dennison very early on. She talked about dependent origination. So I got the idea. Dependent origination is important. I mean, these teachers are all talking about it. Um, I don't quite get it though. I mean, what's, what's all these 12 links about? So really for the first six years, it was on my radar, but uh, I didn't grok it. And then I did a month long retreat with Ayakema six years into practice. And she talked about it more during that retreat. And I began to get a sense of, oh, this is what it's about. And so it was there, not just on my radar, but as actually something to explore. And one of the techniques that she suggested was memorize the 12 links and then get jonically concentrated and then come out and contemplate them. And that was helpful for beginning to get a sense of it. The next year I sat another month long retreat with Ayakima and that was primarily on dependent origination. She took uh, Nikaya number 15, uh, the great discourse on causation, however, it's really on conditions. Uh, and just went through it and talked about it. And that was also very helpful. So now I'm getting teachers that are explaining it and I'm beginning to get a sense of it. When I first started teaching, it was like, okay, I can teach jhanas, but I think I got to say some more stuff. I should say something about dependent origination. That seems important. So I started talking about dependent origination when I started teaching jhanas. 
And uh, yeah, and the more I explored it, the more I found, the more interesting it seemed, the more I learned. And then when I retired in 2008, I started spending a lot of time at uh, Insight Meditation Society's Forest Refuge <clears throat> and doing long retreats there and contemplating dependent origination and getting more of a sense of what it was about. Uh, reading suttas on dependent origination, just studying it. And the more I explored, the more I understood and the more I found to explore. And it just seemed, oh yeah, this is the heart of the Dharma. The, the Buddha is quoted as saying, one who sees dependent origination sees Sadama. One who sees Sadama sees dependent origination. And if that's the case, then yeah, I should just keep looking at this. And if it's funny, I wanted to know why, why things are like they are. Why, why is it like this? That, that was really my question on the spiritual path. It wasn't about how can I get out of dukkha? I mean, when I started, I didn't even know the word dukkha. And the Buddha never promised that. He just said he was going to explain dukkha and how to get out of that. But by exploring dependent origination, I actually did get the answer to why. And the answer is, it's because everything arises dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. And this inner relatedness, interconnectedness, that's why it's this huge net. I mean, the net of Indra is a really good simile. That's what we're enmeshed in. And the more I explored that idea, the deeper my understanding of reality began to begin to feel like was, yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting a sense of this. So yeah, it was just, uh, as I said, the richest vein I've mined in all of the Dharma. And I'm curious what inspired you to write a book on it, on this particular topic. Like I said before, uh, your book, Right Concentration, Mastering the Janus, uh, has become a, a real classic of the genre. Um, so I'm curious then, why this topic for, for your book? Mostly it was because people kept asking me to write a book on it. My students, um, you know, they'd say, you should write a book on that. I was like, I don't even like to write. Oh, come on, you did one already. You can do another one. So I had some students who were willing to do transcripts of the Dharma talks I'd given on dependent origination. And so they did. And so you know, once that happened, it was like, okay, I have to write the book. So I started it in January of 2016. Uh, went fairly well for three chapters. <laughs> it was like, oh, uh, wasn't, it was sort of that I had writer's block. I got to the point where I was trying to write about moment to moment dependent origination. And, there's, there's a brilliant book by Buddha Dasa on that, uh, under the Bodhi tree. Santikaro took all of Buddha Dasa's Dharma talks on dependent origination, put that together into this brilliant book that I highly recommend. You should read that book as well, everybody. And, uh, 
am I going to write a chapter on this when there's a book that's just so much better? And that sort of stalled me for a while. Then I got really ill. I mean, quite ill. And yeah, I wasn't doing much of anything. Uh, but then this pandemic came along and <laughs> Isaac Newton invented calculus and explained gravity during the pandemic of 1666. I could at least finish my book. So I did. But it was, it was inspired basically because I was finding it the most useful thing to explore and people asking me to write a book on it. How did you get past that, that block? Uh, there have been other books written on dependent origination, certainly, and you do cite them and recommend them in the book. You mentioned people like Bikubarudasa, you mentioned even uh, academics like um, Jay Garfield. How did you get past that? that well, th this, this topic has been discussed elsewhere very, very well, and you laud those other publications. Uh, how did you get by that block? So last winter, I got bronchitis. And it was really persistent. And it was like, I'm 72 years old. Is this the end? Am I going to die? Well, yes, I'm obviously going to die. But is, is this the end? You know, if I actually have something to say, I better, I better say it. So every spiritual tradition talks about, well, keeping death over your shoulder. That's how Carlos Castaneda phrased it. Yeah, uh, just the recognition that if I had something more I wanted to say, is going to be time to say it. Um, I had revised the outline of the book during the downtime because I kept, I've done a number of uh, day longs and even weekend uh, retreats on dependent origination, and I kept revising how it, I presented it and so forth. Um, and the sutta in the Sutta Nipata on quarrels and disputes, that's Sutta Nipata 411, I began to realize that, you know, that was really the original teaching on dependent origination. That's the earliest. It doesn't even use the same words as we find in most of it. And that needs to be pointed out because actually understanding that seems to make a lot more sense than jumping into the 12 links. So I started doing day longs for, with that orientation and people were so appreciative because they finally had something they get their mind around. It was like, yeah, okay, I gotta change the outline of the book. I gotta take chapter, what is it, chapter four and I'm gonna move that back and I gotta take chapter five and move it up and I gotta, and I, so I just kept playing around with it. And then, yeah, once it was like, yeah, if I have anything to say, now is the time to say it. Uh, I mean, Newton was busy during the pandemic. I could at least be a little bit busy here. So I did it. Mm -hmm. Well, good thing that you did. In one of the early chapters of the book, uh, you coined this phrase, Dukkha is a bummer. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's the title of the chapter. And to quote from that, Dukkha, bummers happen. The origin of Dukkha, bummers arise dependent on craving. The cessation of Dukkha, with the cessation of craving comes the cessation of bummers. The path of practice that leads to the cessation of Dukkha, the Noble Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of bummers. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, tran the usual translation of Dukkha is suffering. 
Dukkha is this wide. Suffering is, that's only part of what goes on. Yes, the Buddha definitely wanted to get out of suffering. But it, when you start really exploring what he's talking about, he's talking about any sort of negativity. Uh, I mean, we'd all love it if we didn't have any negativity in our lives. That'd, that'd be great, right? So let's just get rid of all the dukkha. But that, that also means the unsatisfactoriness. Let's get rid of the unsatisfactoriness. And I think that's a better translation. But, you know, when someone you love dies, it's not just unsatisfactory. That's actual suffering. So unsatisfactoriness is not a satisfactory translation either. And so at some point, uh, and I have no idea when or where, probably in the middle of some Dharma talk, I translated Dukkha as bummer. And it was like, yeah, that makes a whole lot more sense because what the Buddha is actually teaching is a way to stop getting bummed out about the negativity. There's the Sutta on the Dart. I believe that's Samyutta 36.6. Um, the reference is correct in the book. So if my mind is good, I got it right. Um, he says, a worldling gets hit by a dart and then they get upset and you know, beat their breast and cry out and lamentate. And that's a second dart. An enlightened one gets hit by a dart and doesn't get upset and cry out and doesn't get hit by the second dart. So clearly what the Buddha is saying is what we can learn to do to overcome dukkha is to change our reactions. You know, it says, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, having to associate with the ones you don't want to associate with, all these are dukkha. Okay, so the Buddha overcame dukkha, but he got old, sick, and died. Right? So clearly it doesn't mean you're not going to get old, sick, and die. What, what exactly is going on here? Well, it's clear from that sutta, the dart, that it's about your reaction to the negativities of life. And suffering is not a good trans translation to point to that. Unsatisfactoriness, not a good translation to point to that. But bummer is, because a bummer is something that bums you out. Uh, I went to the beach and I lost my sunglasses. Well, don't get all bummed out, man. It was only sunglasses. All right. So it's don't have a negative reaction. Don't add to the problem with your reaction. If there's a problem, deal with the problem. And I think that's what the Buddha is teaching. I read an interesting article, which I wish I had saved since I've referenced it literally probably more than 100 times on the New Scientist website. And it said that 80% of our mental activity arises due to mental activity. Only 20% comes in through the senses. And so taking this to dukkha, 80% of the dukkha arises from our mental activity. Only 20% of the dukkha arises through our five senses. So yeah, what we're after is to stop getting bummed out. Things are going to go wrong. Entropy always wins. 
you know, things break down. Your new car doesn't smell like new car anymore, and it's got dings and dents, and you have to take it in to be serviced, unless, of course, you have an electric. But even then, you got to rotate the tires. I mean, entropy is always going to win, so we're always going to have to deal with the unsatisfactory nature of reality. How can we deal with it skillfully? And so that's what the Buddha's teaching. And it's about not getting bummed out. So that's why I prefer that translation. But I don't translate it as bummer when I'm talking about it or in the book, I leave it untranslated because people need to know what the word really means. Yeah, and in that chapter, you uh, go through various other attempts, other translations that are often used, and you point out that they're either too serious, uh, they're too dramatic, like suffering, for example, um, you know, in small inconveniences, is a, little, a little dramatic, perhaps, uh, or too trivial, and as you mentioned, unsatisfactoriness. Well, some things are really not very nice that happen, and to say unsatisfactory, well, well, Yes, we can say that's technically right, but it doesn't quite capture it. And, you know, uh, I was looking up uh, the origin of the word bummer, that the sort of slang word, because, um, of course, it has different connotations in different parts of the world. And I was looking up the North American usage. And apparently, it, I expect, you know, it comes from the German word, they think, boomler, uh, which means one who boomlins, which is to loaf or stroll about. And it came to mean a loafer or a vagrant in North American parlance, like a bum, you know, uh, that sort of right. thing. Apparently that's how it went. And it reminded me, and I thought this is kind of funny that you would choose that because that reminded me of the, often it said, you know, Korwar Kyam, the wandering in samsara, you know, uh, as it's often said, <laughs> I thought to myself, goodness, are you referencing the uh, that dimension also? If not, I think that's an unintentional score. I think it's definitely an unintentional score because I was not referencing that. I mean, I was a hippie, right? And bummer was just part of hippie slang. I have to be careful when I teach in non-English speaking countries or even non-North American countries because they don't have the word bummer and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, but it works great for people of my generation who had a hippie background. They, they really get what's being talked about. The fact that it, I, I knew that it originated from bum, uh, but I didn't get the wandering about part or anything else, but that's great. Uh, I should add a footnote to, yeah. to the book. That's one thing about publishing a book on your own. If you want to come out with a second edition just because you added another footnote, uh, I don't see any rules against that, though I'm not likely to do so. You mentioned that your way in was the sutta on the discourse of uh, quarrels and disputes. That was uh, how you that was one of the ways in through your writing block. And you actually lay out in the book the evolution or the different ways in which this idea of dependent origination is presented. And you point out that most often, whenever this is taught, it's taught as here are the 12 links of uh, dependent origination. That's the, that's the teaching. But you've traced uh, how that theme or principle appears in other forms with different links or, or even in a more abstract sort of a form without, without using links specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you've also pointed out, drawing on Joanna Jurovic's work, you speculate that maybe the 12 links uh, formulation uh, might actually be a somewhat later uh, formulation influenced maybe by Vedic doctrine. Mm -hmm. Quite interesting. So I'm wondering if you could say something about the variety and development of this 
particular doctrine through the suttas um, and perhaps even beyond. And maybe also give a little bit more details about your speculation about the Vedic influence. Right. So when you read about dependent origination in the suttas, you find it presented in many different ways. Uh, Four Noble Truths, Ayakema said, Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in telegram style. I would say in Twitter style. Okay, just a summary of the highlights. Uh, the first one, you get born, you're going to experience dukkha, right? That's in the 12 lengths, that's birth and dukkha, right? Dukkha arises dependent on craving. Okay, that's, yeah, link number seven and 12 or whatever the numbers are. Uh, so you find it simplified sometimes to just yeah, two items that are linked together. You find it with two, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, <clears throat> you pick a number between one and 12 and uh, between two and 12, and you can probably find dependent origination teaching with links of that number. The most common, as you say, is the 12 links, but I suspect that's the latest recension that it started out earlier. And in the Quarrels and Disputes Sutta, there are, there are actually seven. I initially talk about six because the shift to the seventh one, we only get to that in the last chapter because it goes in a, an unexpected direction. Uh, but the, uh, the six makes so much sense. We've got a problem with dukkha and it arises because of craving and clinging which arises because of, well, the pleasant, unpleasant experiences we have, Vedna, which of course arise because of sense contacts. And sense contacts, well, that's part of Nama Rupa. Having a mind and body is usually how it's translated in dependent origination. And this makes sense. This makes a lot more sense than 12 links and you get born right before you die. Uh, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, exploring all the ways it's presented <clears throat> and trying to get the commonality and trying to get uh, what it's really pointing at was, was how I got deeper into my understanding of it. Uh, I, had, I had started somewhat in the middle with the uh, nine link version that's given in uh, Diganikaya number 15. And uh, that one, as I later discovered, is probably a, an early collection of links with a later commentary laid on top of it. The sutta comes from the land of the Kurus. The land of the Kurus is the area over near Delhi. And it's interesting, there's no suttas given between Delhi and Savati. And usually, I mean, the Buddha is traveling along and he's given suttas everywhere and there's this big gap. So my theory is that the Dhamma spread to the land of the Kurus and the nine links went there and they composed this sutta along with some other important ones like uh, the Satipatthana Sutta. And they showed up at the second council, which was 60 to 100 years after the Buddha. And they had some suttas that thus they had heard. And they were accepted into the canon. My thesis is that probably less than half of what we have as suttas in the Pali canon were actually given by the Buddha. 
that most of it was composed later. Uh, whether that's 55% or 85%, I mean, we have no idea, but I think a lot of it was composed later. And so I sat down once and read all the Kuru Suttas, and you can hear two voices. This, I think, is about seven of them. One of them has a different voice than the others, and it's like, yeah, okay, this material is different from the bulk of the suttas. And so, but it was a good way in to start exploring, in particular, start exploring in the so-called reverse order. Because if you try and go forward, you want to say, how does this cause that? But if you go backwards, you say, oh, this arises dependent on that, the dependent origination. <laughs> okay. And so I had that to start with. But as I explored more and more, I began to see a more general sense without the commentarial uh, explanation of what it's about. And by that, I mean the Digga 15 commentaries to what they mean, as well as the Vasudhi Madhu commentary, which is the three lives an explanation. And so it was just a matter of sort of starting in the middle and exploring out, looking at the 12 links, trying to make sense of them in terms of that, uh, still having trouble with why do you get born right before you die? Unless, of course, it's not talking about physical birth, which is what Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about in his moment to moment, that it's the birth of the ego, basically. And so, yeah, just exploring and then finally realizing oh, this obscure sutta in the Sutta Nipata, the Quarrels and Disputes Sutta, this is the original. This is the one that it starts from. And there actually is another sutta that uses those words in uh, Samyutta 12, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head. Uh, so in, in the appendix one in the book, I take a look at all the various recensions of, not all, at a lot of the various recensions. I didn't try and go through and find them all. It was just like, all right, here's a bunch of samples. And you can see that it's not, not hard and fast to 12. It's whatever the Buddha felt was important at the time. You're making the point there that uh, going one way through the links uh, might give you a sense of causality but going the other way carries can, can carry more implicitly more this sense of more clearly this sense of dependency. Right. Uh, could you perhaps taking a, a, a cluster of the links, give an example of what you mean there, just to tease out this difference that you make. You, you said in the book that the Buddha was teaching dependencies, not causes. And that, that's something you've brought up a few times. Could you tease that out for us, perhaps with an example? Okay. So pleasant experiences don't cause dukkha, right? But dukkha arises dependent on craving and craving arises dependent on pleasant experiences. Unpleasant experiences, you could say, do cause dukkha, right? But it's not the unpleasant experience that causes the dukkha, it's your reaction to it. It's your craving for the unpleasant experience to go away. And you're clinging to it not being there once it does go away. So birth doesn't cause death. That's links 11 and 12. Being born doesn't cause you to die. Nobody puts, no doctor puts on the birth certificate. 
got born. I mean, on the death certificate, got born, right? It's heart disease or stepping in front of a bus or something like that, COVID. So, but in order to die, you have to get born, right? I mean, that's so obvious. Death arises dependent on there being somebody there to die. And being born, well, that arises dependent on, well, the species that you are a part of having some urge to reproduce. Species that don't have any urge to reproduce don't wind up reproducing and they're gone. So that's what becoming is about. Becoming is basically that urge to reproduce. The, the urge to reproduce doesn't result in birth. It takes more than that, right? The urge is, has to be followed up by some action, right? And uh, there's even more than that going on. There's a lot of dependencies there. But birth is dependent upon the species that you inhabit having an urge to reproduce. So looking at that as opposed to trying to look at causes, uh, it just seems to make a lot more sense. Uh, ignorance doesn't cause sankharas. Sankara, Sankara is maybe one of the most important words, maybe the most important word to understand in all of the Buddha's teachings after Dukkha. And it means making together, and it refers to anything that's constructed. Okay, all the things of this world that are constructed, whether it's human construction, like the boat that you're sitting in, or the house I'm sitting in, or a tree, they're not all arising because of ignorance, right? But when you understand, oh, the conceptualizing boat or house or tree is ignoring the unitive nature of the universe, that uh, the, the way we chop it up into our concepts is not an accurate reflection of what's going on at the deepest level. Our inability to see time in any other way other than the slice of now and the change at human rates leaves a lot to be explored and see what's going on. This boat that you're sitting in, I can see that it's got a lot of wood. That happens with boats. So you're sitting inside a bunch of dead trees, all right? Do you ever look at your boat and go, oh, wow, look at this forest I'm sitting in. Can, can you actually see the birds? Can you see the minerals in the ground? Well, not directly, but that's all there. And that's all part of dependent origination. And you're ignoring that. That's why we have the Sankara called boat or my Sankara called house or the tree or whatever. So uh, it's not about causes, it's about dependencies. And that's really important. Hmm. You talk about consciousness. And one of the things you write is that mind and body are dependent on consciousness and the senses are dependent upon there being a mind and body for them to be embedded in. This is, in, of course, from a wider discussion here that you're making. You also say, if you have a mind and a body and you're not conscious, 
and it stays that way, it's a pretty serious condition. I'm quoting you here. You're in a coma and you'll wind up dead. You have to come back to consciousness fairly regularly. It's okay for a few hours every night. And in fact, it seems to be a requirement. But consciousness has to be happening on a regular basis. So I'm curious if consciousness is a necessary condition for mind and body, how can it be that it's okay for a few hours every night? In fact, it seems to be a requirement you write here uh, that consciousness is not occurring. Yeah. So it's not a requirement for mind and body to keep occurring because of well, we could call it momentum, right? So you were conscious, you found enough to eat, you found a place that's warm enough so that when your consciousness goes away, you stay alive, you've got the momentum. Uh, if you continue to stay unconscious though, your mind and body is not gonna work. You're gonna wind up dead. So, yeah, it, it's not it's not about causes, it's dependencies. So keeping mind and body alive is dependent on you becoming conscious on a regular basis. Uh, the senses operating, yeah, that's also dependent on consciousness. If you go to process them, I mean, yeah, when you're asleep, there might be a sound outside that you your ears pick up, but you don't become conscious of it because it didn't wake you up. But uh, yeah, to, to process your environment and stay alive, you've got to become conscious, at least on a regular basis. So again, we're not doing causes, we're doing dependencies. Thank you, very interesting. In the book, you write about uh, various different models or way in which the uh, this, this idea of dependent origination has been interpreted. You, uh, you've actually touched on it briefly already, the three lives model, which you, you've sort of dubbed something of an immortality project, uh, the moment-to-moment right. -moment model, and you cite Buddha Dasa as a proponent of that, and, and some other models as well, a transcendental uh, dependent origination model. And you even look at uh, ways of thinking about it from the Honeyball Sutra and so on, Sutta, I should say. And also a great part that I enjoyed very much, perhaps because it has pictures, which is a little bit more my, my sort of level, is the, uh, the Wheel of Life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually have a picture of that here. Oh, great. This particular great. one, which I picked up in a thrift store something like 15 years ago before I knew what it was. And so uh -huh. I got this out and I followed through this, uh, these, these uh, links mm -hmm. of uh, pendant origination. I followed through your explanation so I thought that was particularly cool because there's this part in the middle and you, you actually show excerpts from a Wheel of Life uh, tanka, I suppose it must be, or, or some sort of artistic depiction. And you you describe each of them and how they're represented uh, in, in pictorial form. Very fascinating indeed. Could you talk a little bit about that three lives model, first of all, and uh, maybe contrasting it with the moment to moment model? And why is it that you're critical of this three lives model and you, you call it an immortality project? Right. So a lot of spiritual and religious teachings is to help people fulfill their immortality project. We don't want to die. I mean, again, that's a, that's a necessary condition for staying alive. If you don't care whether you're alive or dead, you quite likely wind up dead before you reproduce. And uh, yeah, that doesn't do very well for preserving your genes. 
right? So we all have this urge to stay alive and it becomes apparent eventually that your body is gonna wear out. And so a lot of spiritual and religious traditions are looking for a way so that when your body wears out, you don't really stop existing. And so they come up with all these immortality projects. Believe, that's, the, that's a real popular one. Believe what we tell you. Oh, and yeah, give us some money as well. Uh, and then you'll have eternal life. Or uh, behave really well and you'll get to wind up in a good place, whether it be heaven or reborn in uh, a family that has a Mercedes Benz or whatever. So you find that in Buddhism. Uh, there, there was an article that Stephen Batchelor wrote that prompted an article from, uh, let's just say, uh, another teacher that really blasted. <laughs> he calls Stephen both a Nazi and a communist in this article for not teaching uh, reincarnation, basically. And Stephen came back with a really a uh, very nice, well thought out response to this article. And uh, it was right after that, I looked at uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 38, the Sati, the son of the fisherman sutta, which is also a title of a chapter in the book. And I realized that the author who wrote this stuff had an immortality project. He was trapped in Kama Tanha. People who have kamatanha have immortality projects. I mean, there's two ways to look at kamatanha, craving for becoming. So craving in, for becoming in this life, I want to become rich and famous, or I want to become a deva in my next life, or an angel, or born into a family with a Mercedes Benz. So uh, this kamatanha, I refer to as an immortality project. And people are figuring out all sorts of ways that they're not really gonna die. And this is what Sati, the son of the fisherman had going. His consciousness was gonna transmigrate. This is what the three lives interpretation of dependent origination is all about. It's a very nice, elaborate immortality project. And the first two links are ignorance and sankaras. Sankara is interpreted to mean karmic formations, although the word has a much broader meaning, but by narrowing it down, they can make their immortality project work. That's your previous life. Okay, so in your previous life, you were ignorant and you created karma that has resulted in this birth, this life, with this consciousness and this mind and body, which has senses, which are going to get sense contacts, which are going to produce pleasant, unpleasant, neutral vedna feelings. And if you're not careful, you'll wind up doing the craving and clinging. And the clinging is obviously going to be so strong that when you die, you're going to be reborn. And that's the becoming birth and death of your next life. So that's the three lives model. On a scale of one to 10, I give it an absolute zero for being what the Buddha was teaching. There's not a sutta that I would say is a definitive three lives Sutta. The one I mentioned, Diganikaya 15, is a two lives model, okay, but it's not a three lives model. It doesn't have sankaras and ignorance as part of what's given there. Uh, but again, that's, I think, a later interpretation laid on an earlier recension of nine links of dependent origination. Uh, so 
going back to Sati, the son of the fisherman, the Buddha lays into Sati for misrepresenting his teachings and not understanding what's going on, and then teaches dependent origination. And after a long teaching on dependent origination, he asked, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present? Am I? Am I not? What am I? What is this being? Where has it come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this just because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. Good monks, it's good you know this from your own experience. So actually, dependent origination is a way of examining all of reality, including yourself, and not finding anybody there, which is later styled as emptiness. Right? There's, there's just these streams of dependently arising processes interacting. That's all there is. That's what I'm calling soda pie. Right? So far from being an immortality project, it's a, it's a non-mortality project to see that this idea of you as a separate piece of the universe is actually an optical delusion. That you are the intersection of a bunch of streams of dependently arising processes. And that's all that's going on. And if you begin to get a sense of the huge amount of connections, the interrelatedness of all this all, then the immortality project doesn't make any sense at all because there's nobody there to become immortal. And this is what Samyutta Nikaya 1215, the Gota Sutta is about, which is where Gota wants to know about right view. And the Buddha says, this world for the most part depends upon a duality, the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. And he says that Tathagata doesn't teach that. Tathagata teaches dependent origination. So immortality projects are looking for something that just isn't there. Your body is going to wear out. Your body is going to die. But it's okay. You're not here in the first place. Well, on a relative level, you are. But if you get the bigger picture, the worry about death just evaporates and you realize, oh, I'm just a cog in the universe. I'm just a piece of the universe that has recognized itself, but not recognized that it's just a piece of the universe. You're not the universe, so you're not going to be immortal by deciding that I am the universe. You're just a piece of the universe, but the universe is going to go on whether your peace continues or not. And we know your peace is eventually going to wear out. I think for people who are familiar with your teaching on this sort of matters, this won't be a shock. Or to people who are familiar with, you've mentioned Stephen Batchelor, his writing on this, Buddhism without reincarnation. 
this won't be a shock. But I think to many um, who may perhaps not familiar with that, the idea of Buddhism without reincarnation, it seems uh, certainly to the layman, uh, one almost naturally follows the other in terms of association. I'm curious uh, why you think that is. Of course, reincarnation is taught in Buddhism, uh, certain uh, way, styles of Buddhism and so on, or sects of Buddhism, etc. So I'm curious how you think that happened. And also, what do you make of things like the Jakarta tales, for example, that purport to talk about the past lives of the Buddha? What do you make, this one's a bit of a curveball maybe, what do you make of things like the Tulku system? And uh, what do you make of masters of meditation claiming to be able to read their past lives or even read your past lives and explain why it is that you've got one leg shorter than the other or so on? How is it that this uh, idea of reincarnation, which you framed here as an immortality project, has become so prevalent in Buddhism? People don't want to die, and they're looking for a way not to die. That's why it's so prevalent. <clears throat> so the Buddha was born into a culture where reincarnation was, that was what it was about. The, everybody had an immortality project. That's what everything was, was based on. The Buddha was brilliant. He didn't say, look, look, it's not about re reincarnation. It's about quantum mechanics. Let me explain quantum mechanics to you. Nobody would have listened. If he even said, there is no reincarnation. I mean, there were teachers who were saying that. Uh, how many can you name off the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, their, their teaching died out. What the Buddha did was say, yeah, yeah, okay. But it won't do you any good because the devas, they too die and they wind up back down here and they still got to practice. You should practice now. Remember, the Buddha is not doing metaphysics. Reincarnation is metaphysics, right? The Buddha is trying to get people out of dukkha. He's trying to get them to practice. And so rather than saying, no, 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 your philosophy is all wrong, <clears throat> over and over again, he talks to someone and he says, you believe this? And they go, yeah. And you believe this? Yeah. So that means you believe this. And they're like, what? Well, it follows, doesn't it? I never thought about that. This was brilliant to lead them to the point where they have to see what they were believing in a new light and a new light that actually sheds light on overcoming dukkha. So he was brilliant at doing this. Towards the end of Stephen's book, uh, I believe it's Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, he talks about the fact that in trying to describe the interconnectedness of us all that he experienced on that night of awakening, the, the vast picture, the best way he could do it was to use the understanding of multiple lives and rebirth and so forth and express it in a way that people could understand. He was being practical. He wasn't doing metaphysics, which is the point I make in chapter one of the book. So if you're interpreting what the Buddha said in terms of metaphysics, you're actually missing the point, although a lot of what he says does have metaphysical implications, but that's not the point of why he said it. So yeah, why do people have immortality projects? Because they don't want to die. I mean, think about Christianity without the resurrection. I mean, there are scholars of Christianity saying, you know, that might have been a later edition, but the whole thing is, <clears throat> for some Christians, 
believe and that way you go get to live with Jesus when you die. <laughs> okay, that's, that's reassuring. You know, it's a, it's a crazy world. You're going to experience dukkha along the way and eventually you're going to die. What are we going to do about this? <laughs> you can go back into prehistory and think about it. Grandma's dead. What are we going to do? Don't worry, she'll be back because people notice that, yeah, this little kid here looks just like grandma did when she was young. This is grandma. She's come back. We're not going to die. This is what people are after. And so when I come along and say, nope, you're going to die. In fact, you're not even here in the first place. This is not what people want to hear. It's not what people want to hear from Stephen Batchelor. And so people get upset and throw out everything else because we're threatening their immortality project. <clears throat> Basically, if, if writing this book helps one person deal with their dukkha, then it's a success. I'm not looking for a bestseller. I mean, to write a book on the tentative origination, they expect it to be a bestseller. That's crazy. I mean, how many people are there in the world that would sit down and read a book on independent origination? You know, a few thousand maybe. Though I have had 2,000 downloads already of the book. So maybe it's more than just a few thousand. But yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's a risk of my fame to come out and slam people's immortality project, but I'm not in this for fame. Uh, one of my friends used to say, yeah, you just want to be rich and famous. And I would go, no, no, I don't. I just want to be rich. I don't want to be famous. And it turns out I've got a little bit of both. What about the uh, Jakarta tales or oh, the, the Tuku right. uh, system, right, yeah. people remembering their past lives and so on, or the Buddha, even sometimes in the stories, yeah. uh, seeing into people's past lives and using that as a, as a way to explain why they're in the situation they're in, etc. Right. So the Jataka tales are traditional Indian folk tales that have been co-opted into Buddhism and co-opted in such a way that they explain the Buddha's previous lives. That's, that's what makes them real. Hey, the Buddha was once an elephant, a, a tiger, a, 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 a rabbit, you know, and did this compassionate thing. And it enabled him to become the Buddha. You should be compassionate. Uh, I mean, the Jataka tales actually spread to Europe and Aesop's fables, some of them are based on the Jataka tales. Uh, you might remember one about the fox and the grapes. The grapes are up high. He's leaping up trying to get them. He can't get them. And he walks away saying, well, they're probably sour anyhow. Well, he's just done what the, the Buddha said, right? Change his mind. It's a silly way to change it. But he's not upset. They're probably you know, he, they're probably sour anyway, is his way of not shooting himself with the second arrow. So people like stories, and these stories are really good stories, and they're very good teaching tools. So yeah, they got in, in, incorporated by interpreting them as the Buddha's previous lives. Uh, the tukus, uh, 
I don't think I want to get into that much trouble by trying to explain them, but uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Uh, Stephen Batchelor spent time as a Tibetan monk. I would suggest that you interview him and ask him that question. I'm going to go with his answer, whatever he has to say. As for the Buddha talking about people's previous lives, I refer you to Majjhima 68. In that sutta, the Buddha is talking to some monks, senior monks, among them Anuruddha. And he says to them, why do you think I tell the destination of those who have died? And Anuruddha's got it down. He says, venerable sir, our teachings are rooted in the blessed one, come from the blessed one, have their origin in the blessed one. Now is the time for the blessed one to explain this and the monks will remember it. In other words, if the Buddha asks you a question, don't give your half-baked answer, ask him to explain it. And the Buddha says, I don't tell the destination of those who have died so that people will give me alms food, robes, lodging, will think that I'm wonderful, will buy my books and videotapes, or, right? He says, I do it because it increases the faith in the faithful. Someone hears that old Joe has died, and I say he was an arahant. And they think, oh, Joe was an arahant? Wow, if he could do that, I can do that. And they practice well and become an arahant. And then I say that Sally was a once returner. Make Sally made it to once return. I can practice really hard. Actually, it goes, it doesn't have any names, but it goes through all the four stages of awakening for all of the four elements of the Sangha. Four stages for the uh, monks, four stages for the nuns, uh, the lay men, the lay women, and even for those who haven't arrived at those stages. And it's all to enhance their faith. In other words, people are motivated to do something that's going to be beneficial for them, particularly beneficial in that they're not going to die. We want the Buddha to always tell the absolute truth, right? Okay. The Buddha was trying to get people out of dukkha. And so he presented to them what he thought was going to be helpful. Uh, another sutta, I believe this is uh, Udana 2.1, and this is about the Buddha's uh, half-brother Nanda, or maybe it's stepbrother Nanda. Nanda was engaged in love with his fiancée. The Buddha shows up and hands Nanda his bowl and walks away, and Nanda follows the Buddha, and next thing you know, he's a monk, but he's not happy being a monk. He wants to go back and, you know, marry his fiance. And so he goes to the Buddha and says, no, I'm going to disrobe. I'm going back to my fiance. And the Buddha says, have you heard that I sometimes visit the Deva realms? Yes, venerable sir. And the Sutta says, come with me. And he takes him to the Deva realms and he shows him the nymphs in the deva realms he says if you practice hard i guarantee you a thousand no 500 pink-footed nymphs and uh says what do you think of these nymphs compared to your 
fiance, oh, I prefer the nymphs. And so he goes back and Nanda starts practicing for the sake of nymphs and the words get around and they make fun of him. So he goes off in the forest to practice by himself and becomes awakened. And he comes back and he says, yeah, never mind about the nymphs. So, okay, I'm going to say that the Buddha didn't take him to the, the Deva realm. I'm going to say the Buddha put his arm around him and said, bro, if you heard I go to the Deva realm, well, let me tell you about the nymphs in the Deva realms. And he tells him about it. It says you can have 500 nymphs. Whether they actually went to a deva realm or not, the Buddha promised his stepbrother 500 nymphs. Well, there's no amount of practice going to get you 500 nymphs. Not any genuine practice. It's going to get you out of dukkha. Was the Buddha lying or was he just using skillful means? Uh, yeah, we don't want a Buddha who would ever say anything that wasn't 100% true. But that doesn't seem to be the picture that we fully get. At times, he would explain what's going on in terms of what the culture would expect, telling people's destination or why bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. And it was just his way of teaching. That's my take on it. I'm sure you can find people that will come up and say other things. Of course, yeah. Very interesting. Thank you, Lee. You also discussed the moment-to-moment -moment model, which you describe as, and I'm quoting you here, probably the deepest and most important way to look at them, them being the links of dependent origination. And you right. cite Buddha Dasa as, and, and his book uh, as a key influence there. And also it's here that you get into two strategies uh, for using this uh, concept of the, of the 12 links of dependent origination as um, a means of a practice, actually. Two practice strategies, we could say. A short-term strategy, which is mindfulness of Vedana, and long-term strategy, which is to uproot ignorance itself. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this moment-to-moment -moment model and these two strategies, uh, and how it is that this idea of dependent origination can shed some light on the self and um, what implications that might have in terms of uh, freedom from suffering. So it's easiest to leave off the first two links of the 12 links in the ascending order and just say, okay, you've got a mind and body that's conscious and it has senses and they're going to receive sense contacts. And those contacts are going to produce pleasant, unpleasant and neutral Vedana. Okay. That's just, that's happening. It's, running on automatic. If you react in a way such that there's craving, I want to get it, and clinging, I've got it and I'm going to keep it. It requires the construction of the one who's going to get it. There has to be a getter to get something or the clinger to cling to it. It's construction of the sense of self. Right. And that is the becoming and the birth that happens. And you've given birth to your ego, yourself, however you want to call it. Unfortunately, because this is a, an illusion, actually a delusion, it's not what's reality. Uh, yourself is going to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and you're going to have to keep rebuilding it. It's not like you can get something and then, yeah. 
you're satisfied forever. Whatever it is you got uh, wears out, gets stolen, broken, whatever, eaten, and you got to get some more. And so there's this continual having to create a sense of self that's going on in order to get and to hold on to. And the moment to moment look is a look at this self-creation in particular in relation to the craver and the cleaner who's doing the craving and clinging. The strategy is to pay attention, second establishment of mindfulness, to Vedana. Get your mindfulness in there at the point of sense contact and the Vedana that arises and use your mindfulness not to get caught in craving and clinging. If it's something pleasant, enjoy it. If it's something unpleasant, deal with it, but don't get lost in the craving and clinging. That's basically the strategy moment to moment for every sensory input, okay? Um, if you were to ask me which of the four establishments of mindfulness I thought was the most important to practice, I would say second. Uh, you got to do the first one first because that's the foundation. Until you get that one, you're not going to be any good at mindfulness of Vedana, but you're getting your mind in there between the Vedana and the onset of craving and clinging. And there can be a lot that goes on there. Uh, the Honeyball Sutta, which you mentioned earlier, uh, which I talk about in the book, gives some of the details of what goes on in there. And that's important to understand as well. But if it, if what goes on gets out of hand and turns into craving and clinging, it's just a setup for dukkha. So on a moment to moment, every sensory input basis, you want to be mindful of the Vedana that are being generated and don't get lost in craving and clinging. But the long-term strategy is to uproot the ignorance, <clears throat> the ignoring of the incommunicatable, indivisible, indescribable nature of the universe, the so-called view of ultimate reality. The, the two truths doctrine doesn't really show up in the suttas. There are hints of it in Dikanikaya number nine and a few other places. It shows up apparently in the questions of King Melinda of a few hundred years after the Buddha and then comes full blown with Nagarjuna in his Malayamaka Karaka discussion of emptiness. But we do need to be able to look at the world from a different perspective than the way we usually look at it, from the ultimate perspective. I actually prefer two perspectives rather than two truths. I mean, we've got this water glass here. Is it concave or convex? Right? Well, if I would put water in it, it better be using the concave, but I could turn it upside down and use it to elevate a candle. And then I would be using the convex. It's both at the same time, but it depends on your perspective as to what you see. So reality depends on the perspective where the, you're seeing the relative perspective of, yeah, this is my cell phone. It's not your cell phone, right? This is your boat, it's not my boat, etc. Uh so it's a useful perspective. You can't cross the street from the ultimate perspective. You get run down. You look, you see a bus coming. You can't say it's empty. It'll still run you down. So we have to operate from the relative perspective. But as Nagarjuna said, 
actually not the relative perspective, but the perspective that doesn't fully reveal. So we have to operate from the perspective that does fully reveal, usually called the ultimate perspective, to be able to get free of dukkha. And when we can explore that perspective deeply enough, then we can overcome the ignorance, the ignoring how the world really works. And if we do overcome that ignorance, then we see there is nothing worth craving. There is nothing that can be clung to. The craving and clinging gets uprooted. No more dukkha because you've removed the necessary conditions for the arrival of dukkha. So it's the uprooting of dukkha that provides the ultimate, the full awakening perspective. Uh, the uprooting of ignorance that provides the ultimate full awakening perspective that gets us out of dukkha once and for all. Uh, meanwhile, pay attention to your sensory input and don't get lost in craving and clinging. I'm curious if mindfulness of Vedana, which is the, you as you presented the book, a short-term strategy, um, mm -hmm. is sufficient to lead to the long-term strategy of uprooting ignorance, or is it necessary to engage a a wider range of analysis or uh, different meditational tools? I suspect that it requires a wider range. I say this not because I've gotten all the way, I still got work to do, but because I've managed to reduce the dukkha further by getting the wider perspective. Uh, the, the, the keeping your mindfulness out there at the Vedana thing is a lot of work. And most of the time, you're not going to be able to pull it off, right? Uh, you can get better and better at it, but it's going to be exhausting. And maybe you're going to lose your motivation. It's like, no, I'm just going to go eat that chocolate bar or whatever. But if you can get the wider perspective to see that, yeah, there's, there's nothing really there. I, I think that's going to be required. If we look at transcendental dependent origination, there's a chapter on that as well. We find that, okay, <clears throat> from dukkha, you gain confidence as a path out. And from that confidence arises pamoja, worldly joy, practicing the path and getting some results. You're able to take that into the four jhanas, and from the, coming out of the four jhanas, you have the ability to, as usually said, knowing and seeing things as they are. I want to say knowing and seeing what's actually happening because it's more verbs than nouns, right? So knowing and seeing what's actually happening, you can become disenchanted, right? So the knowing and seeing what's actually happening is overcoming the ignorance. And then you become disenchanted. You break the spell. We're enchanted. By, yeah, if we just get another fill in the blank, we'll be happy. All right. And now we become disenchanted. We break the spell. And then we become, well, it's usually translated dispassionate. Not particularly helpful translation. The word is viraga. Raga is to color something. The Indian musical raga is to color your mind. Okay. Graffiti is a raga. Okay. 
So viraga is to not color. So your mind is no longer colored by the things you were enchanted with. You have dispassion. Uh, think of a toy that you had as a kid, a toy that if you lost it, you would be devastated. And now today, where is that toy? You don't even know, right? You've become dispassionate towards that toy. It doesn't have the hooks it had before. So I think that knowing and seeing things as they are, disenchantment, dispassion is what's required to go all the way. What follows next independent origination is liberation. So, and that's going to be the overcoming of ignorance. So I think to get the whole way, you're going to need that. You mentioned uh, Nagarjuna. And actually, somewhere through the book, you move beyond the suttas to uh, consider Nagarjuna, an author mm -hmm. who you're, uh, I, I suppose, what could we say? You admire him? That's not quite the right word, is it? What would you say? <laughs> I admire him, but I also find his writings to be extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, that's the right way to put it. Yeah, great influence on you, Nagarjuna. And your appreciation for his, his writing and thinking uh, comes through in this section. And one of the key points you make there is that dependent origination by the time of Nagarjuna is equated with emptiness. And that mm -hmm. has actually several implications. In, in fact, you write, when you hear teachings on emptiness, what you're hearing is teachings on dependent origination. Can you talk a little bit about that dependent origination and emptiness? And you, of course, exp explain this in the book. Can you, can you say a little about, about how Nagarjuna makes that link and perhaps hint at some of its implications? Yeah. So what Nagarjuna is doing is looking at various aspects of life. Uh, it starts out with movement, uh, with seeing, with a body and its parts, and, and says things are empty because they arise due to other things. There's a dependency there. Uh, walking, you can't have walking without a walker, but you also can't have a walker without walking. They're both concepts and each concept is dependent on the other. And so he starts exploring pretty much everything until eventually in chapter 18, he gets to self. And he points out that, yeah, you are not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. You're neither forever fused with them nor separated from them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. That's Sotapai, right there. That, that verse, more than anything else that I ever encountered, led to Sotapai. Uh, just to see that everything, I mean, yeah, I held up my cell phone, right? It's a cell phone. Well, no, it's plastic and silicon and glass and metal. Oh, and programming and, you know, the silicon, that's sand and the sand that was produced by rocks being crushed by gravity because they were on the bottom of the, I mean, it, there's so much that goes into this being a cell phone. It's empty of cell phone-ness, right? And someday it's going to break wear out, whatever, and then it'll get recycled, become, I don't know, an iPod or something. Uh, everything is like that. Everything is back in time, dependent on a whole lot of stuff, and forward in time is eventually going to be recycled into other things. Uh, your boat, as I said, you know, it used to be a bunch of trees. And eventually, yeah, maybe it's going to be firewood when the boat finally wears out. We're just the same way. 
we're just as empty, we're just as dependently originated as everything else in the universe. And so to see that there's no essence to anything, no essence of boatness in your boat, no essence of cell phone-ness in my cell phone, no essence of Lee in me, just streams of dependently arising processes interacting. That's all there is. That's what it means to be empty. Can we talk about soda pie for a moment? Yeah. Like I said, I think that's such a cool acronym. And I think, like I said, I think with soda pie, you have definitely elevated such a, uh, maybe that's a little heretical to say to the, uh, <laughs> to the, the, the Buddhists among us, but uh, I think you've elevated its coolness factor, certainly uh, with soda pie, but depending on originally, oh, that's okay. You know, but teacher Samapad is pretty cool, but soda pie is like, oh, that's really, really, really uh, excellent. How did you come up with that? Yeah, so I'm trying to describe what I'm seeing. And so I'm, I'm seeing streams of dependently originating phenomena interacting. That was the first, so-do-pi. But so-do-pi, that, that's, that's kind of weird. Some people say dependent arising instead of dependent originating. I'll just use arising. And then it becomes soda pie. And I don't know if you've seen the back cover of the book. Yeah. So if you go to my website and you click on the book, Dependent Origination and Emptiness, you'll, you'll arrive at the initial uh, you know, page for the, the book. And it, it says other formats, paperback. And if you click on paperback and scroll to the bottom, there's a picture of the back cover and the front cover. So if you want to make your own. And if you look carefully at what you see, uh, you can click on that and you'll get a big picture of it. What do you see? It's a uh, soda with a plate of pie. <laughs> right, exactly. That makes it a mnemonic, right? So it's a easily rememberable mnemonic, soda pie, okay? And yet, if you plug in the letters, you get dependent origination. Several of my students are referring to the book as soda pie. They were asking, when is soda pie coming out? Oh, you got a publisher for soda pie, that's great. It's gonna be 18 months before soda pie comes out. Oh, that's too bad. You know, so they're referring to the book as soda pie. If you look at the cover of the book, it says dependent origination and emptiness up at the top. And then it says streams of dependently arising processes interacting with each word one above the other so that the initial letters line up and they're in a different color. So you actually see soda pie on the cover. It's kind of a sneaky way to do it. But since soda pie isn't well known, I sort of got to sneak it in there to begin with. And then when you get to the back cover, there it is. And actually the website for the book itself is sodapie.leeb.com. But if you click on leeb.com, you can easily get there. And you know, what you've done with that image is now we can also add this to the Wheel of Life tanker. Right. Not only do we have each of the links represented, as you describe them in the book, uh, but pictorially, you have now co uh, contributed an image that encapsulates the entire 
uh, admittedly in a monomic form as opposed to symbolic right. form, the entire doctrine. Right. That was, I mean, it, it just sort of came out. I started talking about it, you know, when I'm, I'm giving a Dharma talk and I'm saying this stuff and it just sort of so dope I comes out and it was process. It was phenomena to begin with, but it was like, no, 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 it's not phenomena, it's processes. And then it became streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Of course, I tried to get an E on the end of it. You know, people, and I kept, you know, people would say, you need an E on the end. And I would say, okay, give me a good E. Eternally is what most people initially suggested. But I don't know eternally. I can't say eternally. I don't know anything about eternity, right? All I can say is, this is what I'm seeing now. Entropically, that's really good, but it's weird. It's very weird. Uh, other people had other suggestions. None of them actually really worked. So it was like, okay, all right, it'll have to go with the Greek letter pi, even though the picture has edible pie. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Lee, this has been uh, so interesting. I should say we, we've really only scratched, we've actually gone through quite a lot, but we've only really scratched superficially what you're laying out in the book. There's also an extensive discussion on Nirvana and different sutric presentations of what nirvana actually means. Well, what is what does it mean to to achieve nirvana or to enter nirvana and these sorts of things? And you describe that and go through these various different comparisons there, which is I think also very interesting. You you talk at length about Nagarjuna consciousness and uh, all all sorts of uh, things. So actually, if any of this has whetted the appetite of the listener or viewer, I would strongly suggest uh, go to leeb.com and and uh, get a copy of this. Is there anything? that we haven't said or haven't talked about that we should talk about? So one of the important chapters is a chapter on the Honeyball Sutta. And in there, I make the, the, the claim that a better translation of the Pali word Sanya, which is usually translated as perception, is conceptualization. I, I found that so helpful. Uh, one of the teachers at the Forest Refuge, Annie Nugent, mentioned just offhandedly in a talk on the, the five aggregates that sometimes Sanya's translated as conceptualization. I never heard another word she said after that because it, you know, the light bulb went on and I'm plugging conceptualization into every place I know Sanya is in the suttas and going, yeah, it's better, it's better, it's better. And conceptualization is what we do. So, uh, what do you see here? You see a bird? You see, you see some flowers? Yeah, no bird, no flowers there, just colored shapes. The bird and flowers are your sanya. You conceptualize that. It's all happening in your mind that you take the colored shape, the visual input, and you conceptualize what it is. You know, I hold up this and you go, oh, yeah, that's a mask. If I'd held it up, you know, three years ago, you go, oh, I don't know what that is. Oh, because but now everybody knows you've got the concept down. Right. So we operate on concepts. We see the holistic world, but our pea brains are too small to take it all in. So we have to bust it up into pieces that we can manipulate, deal with, digest, chew. And those are bits of sanya, concepts. And those concepts sometimes are accurate reflections of reality. 
and sometimes they're not. And all of our thoughts and emotions, those are sankaras, making together. We make together bits of sanya to have our thoughts and emotions. So I lost my sunglasses at the beach. I'm all bummed out. Okay, so there's the concept of sunglasses, mine, lost, beach, bummed out. We string them together and we have the thought, right? And can you do the other concept of I'm not bummed out? Maybe whoever found them needs them more than I do. There's another concept to throw in there of someone finding them, needing them, right? And you overcome the dukkha. So conceptualization is a really, really important thing to understand on the Buddhist path. And the title of the last chapter of the book is Don't Be Fooled by Your Conceptualizing. And that's a really key point. I mean, that's, that's basically where I'm going with this book is trying to convince people to pay attention to their conceptualizing and not get fooled. The whole thing with the pandemic going on because people don't want to get vaccinated, well, it's their conceptualizations about what's going on as opposed to, yeah, taking a closer look at reality. How does this book fit in with your book on the jhanas, right concentration? Let's say a person has read right concentration. They've been practicing that, pursuing the jhanas keenly. They've absorbed the material in that book. How does this book fit in with that? What advice would you have for somebody who's familiar with right concentration, perhaps even is practicing from that point of view, yeah. uh, to approach this topic of sotapai? Right. So the way to do it is get your mind jhanically concentrated and then step out of the highest jhana you know, four, seven, whatever, and start contemplating Sotapai. Start contemplating the ideas in the book. Learn the 12 links so you can recite them forwards and backwards. Okay, that's, that's going to be real helpful. Do the contemplation while you're still sitting in your meditation posture and continue the contemplation until the bell rings. In general, what you want to do is spend about half of the meditation period getting concentrated and then half of the meditation period exploring reality. And exploring dependent origination, contemplating it, is a very effective way to understand what the Buddha was talking about. That's how, that's what this book is. That's where it came from. You know, I get honestly concentrated and think about dependent origination. It is legal to think while you're sitting on a little pillow. So if you stay on topic and yeah, that's where the book comes from is my contemplations of dependent origination with a jhanically concentrated mind. The Buddha taught Sila Samadhi Panya. That's, that's his teachings in a three-word nutshell, morality, concentration, wisdom. Basically, clean up your act, learn to concentrate your mind, use your concentrated mind to investigate reality. You got to do the morality thing before you sit down on the cushion, keep the precepts, right? And then use the jhanas to concentrate your mind. Hopefully my book is somewhat useful for that. And once your mind is concentrated, and start examining reality and hopefully dependent origination and emptiness is a way for you to examine reality that'll be fruitful. Wonderful. Meditation in the Latin sense. Yeah. Yes. Lee, this has been so fabulous. Thank you for appearing here and, and discussing your new book, Dependent Origination and Emptiness, subtitle, Soda Pie. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.